If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Beyond the Paper Gown, hosted by Dr. Mitzi Crockover, helps people think critically about women's health issues, encouraging them to question and explore the complexities of healthcare systems, scientific advancements, and societal norms. There's a really cool episode that you should check out called Midday Menopause App. And that's about how AI and sensor technology can provide personalized interventions to manage menopause symptoms effectively. Check out Beyond the Paper Gown on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com. So as a family medicine physician, before a patient even comes to me, there's a phenomenon that happens. And it took me a while to realize this. Do you know what that is? Here's Tanya, a researcher and anthropologist who names that phenomenon. It was also interesting that most of the nurses actually told me that they wouldn't really discuss their parents' health conditions with the parents' health providers. So they would give their parents advice and they would nudge the parents to talk to their doctors, but not to mention that this advice came from their children who were nurses. Hi, I'm Dr. Raj Sundar, a family physician and a community organizer. You're listening to Healthcare for Humans, the show dedicated to educating you on how to care for culturally diverse communities so you can be a better healer. This is about everything that you wish you knew to really care for the person in front of you, not just a body system. Let's learn together. That was researcher and anthropologist Tanya Alin. Have you ever found yourself in a situation similar to what Tanya just shared? A scenario where patients bring in questions from their family members who happen to be healthcare professionals. And it doesn't quite register until midway through the conversation. It's actually a scenario that exemplifies the complex dynamics we frequently encounter in healthcare, particularly when family members bring their own healthcare knowledge into the mix. But what really strikes me as significant is how often these kind of questions come up. And it's interesting to consider how family members who are armed with their understanding of their loved one's health, because they've cared for them their entire lives, can offer such valuable insights. Yet, we, as healthcare professionals, sometimes approach this with a degree of skepticism or hesitation, because we are the experts of this patient, because we have their health record, and we have the knowledge due to decades of training and practicing medicine. Who are the family members, especially the ones not even in this country, without all the details of what's happening, to chime in? I'll say I have a family of healthcare professionals, and people share all kinds of things through apps, including their x-ray results and lab results for second opinions amongst family members. But if we don't acknowledge this and address it openly, families often withdraw choose not to reveal the source of the questions, even if they have those questions. I firmly believe that's on us as professionals to foster an environment where there's trust to encourage this kind of sharing. After all, when it comes to integrating the family's perspective, it's not just important, it's absolutely essential. It's essential because their input is deeply rooted in their concern for their loved one's well-being. They're the ones who are going to take care of them. It's crucial for us not to dismiss or become frustrated when family members choose to participate in their care processes 
That seems obvious. But the reality is, we don't let it happen. And I know if you're listening to this, you likely have a lot of difficult examples running through your mind. Because there's tough examples of how sometimes it feels like family values and opinions conflict with your own professional values and opinions. That's the nature of the work too. But we will talk about this specific topic through the lens of technology today with Tanya. Then we'll touch upon the emotions of this. Love, duty, guilt, reciprocity, and obligation to take care of each other, which all comes into play in something Tanya calls care collectives. You'll hear from Tanya today, but you can also read many of the concepts we talk about in her book, Calling Families, Digital Technologies and the Making of Transnational Care Collectives. This is part two of our episode on care and technology with Tanya. If you haven't listened to part one, it's okay. Finish this episode, and then you can go to part one afterwards. Here's Tanya again. Yeah, the co-presence that you're describing, I call this spending time together on the webcam. Because uh, the webcam has a very paradoxical effect in the sense that as long as the webcam is open, you don't have to speak. And actually, you don't even have to look at the image. It's enough that it's just there and it can be something in the background, actually. And in the families I worked with, uh, this was especially useful with grandchildren, like what you mentioned right now. Because when grandchildren are small, when they're still toddlers, they cannot speak. So it's very difficult to communicate with them on the phone. So this connection between grandparents, especially grandmothers and their grandchildren, was flourishing most on the webcam and then also later on with WhatsApp, also through sending short video clips recorded on smartphone and so on. Yeah, I think COVID accelerated it a bit. I think for many people, this wasn't the norm. Then they were forced to make it the norm. Then they realized, yes, it's not as good as physical presence sometimes, but it can be effective and more effective than other forms of communications we've had or not connecting at all, which was the case right before these technologies existed. Exactly. Exactly. That's why I also point out that this is still as about not being together, but as if we are together because it's not exactly the same. So it's important to realize that this is mediated presence. It's not being physically together. So sometimes also people ask me, since transnational care collectives seem to function to a certain degree, is it enough? And you don't even have to be there anymore physically. But I say, I don't think so, to be honest. I think that transnational care collectives also function because they are supported by regular physical visits. These visits don't have to be very frequent. They can happen only every once in a few weeks or every once in a few months or every once a year or even less, but they are still very important. When being physically together is not an option, then relying on digital technologies definitely can help. But then visiting is just as important. And of course, when people's health declines, then the frequency of visits becomes even more important. So in my research, there were some parents who became really physically ill, like with cancer and so on. And in those examples, the children would really immediately take as much leave as possible and visit as much as possible, as much as their work would allow. 
And that was very important for them, as well as in some cases going to the funeral. That is also an important part of grieving, which is much more difficult to do at a distance, many have told me. Yeah, I think the virtual communication is a bridge until you can see each other in person mm. in some way. I am thinking about a moment that I just experienced. I do OB care, so I do prenatal care and deliver. And I was taking care of a patient in Africa, I won't name the country, just for confidentiality. And her husband didn't have the visa to come here. So after we, we FaceTimed or video called him before the labor started, and then after the delivery and the baby was born, that's the first thing we did was video call him. And we saw his reaction as we held the baby and showed it to him. And I think you could see both that the acknowledgement of, hey, like this wouldn't be possible if it wasn't for the video call to it wasn't the same as holding your baby. Yes, right? yes. So it's, it's frustrating. Now you're like, I see my own baby and I can't be close right. to him. So, that feeling. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. This is also something that I write about because people have told me that exactly what the moment that you're describing now, they have described it with the words of unbearable feelings. So this is a new kind of feeling that is co-produced by the webcam. Because at the same time, it makes you feel as if you're there, but it also makes you acutely aware of not being there. I think this is a very important impact of the webcam. It's not just a communication channel, like we're just using this for the purposes of communication, but it does something to us. It makes us feel new mm. feelings. That's before the webcam, perhaps they weren't there. But now we are really acutely aware of this distance. Yeah, I, I do think it's a manifestation of the context of our lives now, yep. which wasn't present before. Of that, I'll say that again, the acute feeling of realizing that you're not there. Yeah, exactly. Because you're getting all the information, the visual input, but you're physically not there. Mm -hmm. And I think of, that's hard. It is. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to also connect it to mental health because a lot of my episodes actually touch on mental health, even if not explicitly, of if a patient or somebody sh showed up depressed. We have such a flattened term for the complexity of feelings that people go through before it ends up as depression or anxiety. And I think this feeling probably adds on to a multitude of feelings for people who are far away from their family. Yes. Yeah, for sure. I also have a really wonderful example of this son who lives in the UK and he's an only son. So he has no brothers and sisters, but his parents are in India. And then his father got sick with COVID. And it was a really difficult experience for him because he was not able to travel. And yet he was trying out all the ways of organizing care for his father at a distance. So he was Googling the ambulance and, and ordering an ambulance through Google and on the phone. And, and once they were in the hospital, he was on WhatsApp with his mother the whole time. And then he was actually through the mother's phone. He was talking with the doctor and the mother was showing her smartphone to the doctor and he was talking with the doctor on her behalf. And the interesting part here was that his co-presence through the webcam, through WhatsApp, 
in India was so important or so significant that he actually had to take a leave from his work because he was worried that he would commit some professional mistake in his physical environment. So this only goes to testify how important this shift of attention through digital technologies can be. Yeah, it's a good point to transition. Let's get to something concrete and practical for people that you're around that are part of transnational care collectives. I think one part of this that I want to dive deeper into is we often see people that are part of these transnational care collectives. Often, from my perspective, because I'm in the U.S., I see people who have immigrated here and are caring for family back home. So part of that is remittances, which is sending money back yep. home. Second part of it is caring for the family back mm-hmm. home, either informally through advocacy, as you said in that example of speaking to the doctor through my mom's phone, <laughs> so they're getting the best care. But there can be somewhat more professional care because a lot of healthcare professionals here immigrated from abroad. So... For my family, it's true, but I think it's true for other families in other Asian communities specifically, which is that we can also provide like formalized healthcare or second opinion. (laughs) When somebody in your family gets sick, they go to the hospital, they get blood work, they get labs, and then they send all the labs through WhatsApp here. (laughs) And then they ask you, are they doing the right thing? Are they getting the best care? that you have to respond to that. So you've become a part of a formal care team in one way. I think it can go the other way because there have been models where I think in the Spanish speaking population, where maybe you're connected to a psychologist in Mexico or Mexico because they're providing better culturally responsive care. If you're a new immigrant to America, then like one of our trained professionals. So there are models there. So I'm looping that in because I think it can happen in other communities too. Absolutely. So there's both informal advocacy and formal healthcare that is provided through these care technologies. I think that's just a fact. The question that I have is, how do we best incorporate that fact into formal healthcare? Yeah. Uh, One thing I haven't mentioned yet is that I actually worked with The children who migrated abroad from India were actually professional nurses. And that's because nursing has become seen as a migration strategy among many Indians. So they become nurses in order to migrate abroad because they have thought being a nurse, it would be relatively easy to find employment abroad. And that means that, of course, these children are at once professional health carers and family carers, right? So formal and informal carers at once. And most of them uh, were also giving healthcare advice to their family members. And there was actually quite a bit of difference between sons and daughters. So the parents shared very often with their daughters, their health concerns, or if they had an accident or whatever issues they had, and a bit less so with sons. So there was this gender difference and there was one son who didn't know that his father had 
an accident and had broken his shoulder. So he only found out about that when he returned back home after a few years. And he was really shocked to see that they just wouldn't share that with him. But the parents said, he's so far away. So why would we stress him? It's not like he can come back running and help us. But they said that more often for sons than for daughters. And the daughters, some of them were actually doing telemonitoring for their parents at the distance. There was a nurse based in the U.S. who was on the phone with her parents every day, twice a day, before her night shift and after her night shift. And her father had a Parkinson's disease and her mother was also struggling with different health issues. So she had some accidents and so on. She also had a stroke at one point. So she, this nurse, was monitoring her father with the help of her mother. So she was asking her every day about how his mood was, how his skin condition was, because he had some conditions and so on. And that kind of healthcare was a fact. It was also interesting that most of the nurses actually told me that they wouldn't really discuss their parents' health conditions with the parents' health providers. Because there are also these different hierarchies, like local hierarchies. And in the Indian context, doctors are much higher on the hierarchy than nurses. And then also because these were nurses abroad, they really didn't want to mess with the doctor-patient relationship there. So they would give their parents advice and they would nudge the parents to talk to their doctors, but not to mention that this advice came from their children who were nurses. And uh, yeah, sometimes this worked quite well. And there were also other examples like a young nurse who was based in the Maldives. And she said when one of her parents had a heart condition, she actually talked about this with the doctors who worked around her. And then she had a second opinion from the doctors who worked around her. And they took that into account very seriously. So this kind of care is not something that a formal healthcare provider will often hear about, but it is definitely a part of the care that people seek and also get. So how to integrate that? I think if time allows, right? Because time is a very important factor. It's often about being very attentive to the person who is in front of you. And then perhaps they will share more with their clinician than otherwise, right? But attention is really something that everybody's fighting for these days, right? Yeah, I think this is just a part of what I would say, a part of good care is to be able to be attentive to the person in front of you and to listen. It's not often we like to give advice and to talk and so on, but listening and listening very well is sometimes just as important, if not more. Yeah, that's a good way to encapsulate that. I was thinking for me what that could look like. The principle being open to the idea that People are receiving care through these transnational care collectives abroad, across the U.S., through family members that may be health professionals. And the practice being, if I see somebody that is a healthcare professional and I know or ask them about family and their family is abroad or elsewhere, asking about their family, like how is their family doing and how that's affect their well-being, being a caregiver in that role. or if I'm taking care of often people who are older and I know they have family elsewhere, 
But I think eliciting somehow that they are giving care advice from other people. So I think there's an openness to healthcare professionals and clinicians not feeling like their judgment or competence is being challenged mm -hmm. by somebody who doesn't know the situation. But integrating this other person who can provide a valuable information to inform the care recommendation. I think it's important to do that because transnational care collectives are, I find, really important for people getting care. And I think I was looking for this quote that you had mentioned. It was about how, I think it was Mercy calling Rosa on a daily basis, that they could provide care that's very contextual because she understood the relationship between her parents and she just knew so much more about the, her own family of what would work and what exactly. wouldn't. Hey, like you can prescribe the medication, but they won't take it. Yeah, yeah. I know that. So there's expertise within the family that healthcare professionals don't know. So if the family is receiving care from somewhere else, how do you create a context that's open enough to bring that person into the care because they do know the family well enough and have had prior experience that they can bring in? Yeah. Going back to this example that I used of, hey, yeah, you can prescribe that medicine for diabetes, but they're not going to take it. So let's do this instead. And then maybe we can work right. towards getting the medication or something. I don't know. Right. The, I think the example that you were referring to was about another person. It was a nurse in the U.S., but actually the key word here, I think, is trust. So one of the things that happens because this nurse, I think I call her Teresa in the book, one of the things that frequent calling, calling her parents twice a day actually fosters is trust. It's the fact that not only she knows everything that happens in the family, but also between the parents, right? So the mother was a primary carer for the father with the Parkinson's disease. So she knew the relationship between them very well. She knew if they had an argument, how they communicate with each other and how to talk to each of them and how to listen to each of them. And she told me very clearly, she said, it's the trust. And I'm calling them because I need to foster this trust. Otherwise, this would not have worked. And she also had a couple of sisters. So one of the sisters lived very nearby the parents, actually. She was married, living just a few streets away. And yet another sister was also a nurse working in one of the Gulf countries. But that sister only called home once a week. And then she said, but they are not listening to her, like whatever advice she would give, they always listen to me. So I think trust here and making it clear that whatever people share with their clinician is not going to backlash is really important. Yeah, exactly. Any other final takeaways? Among the questions that you sent me before this conversation, there was also this question, like what makes transnational care collectives effective? And I think the notion of transnational care collective is useful because it effectively describes how care may be understood in this transnational context. In this contemporary world where digital technologies are so available and accessible and, as you said, omnipresent. And at the same time, I think it's important to highlight also that it's not just the digital technologies that make this kind of care possible, but that there's actually something else 
that makes people use this di digital technologies, right? It's not like the phone for the time being, at least. Phones and laptops and so on don't call people by themselves for the time being. Let's wait another month or so. Yeah. <laughs> but it's actually people who still need to pick up the phone and dial the number, right? So it turns out that it's actually a lot about emotions. It's the transnational care collective's function because of affect, because of the emotions that people feel for each other. And those can be emotions of love. And I could observe that so many times, especially between grandmothers and grandchildren. That was so obvious. But there can also be other emotions like feeling the need to reciprocate, like what you mentioned at the beginning of this talk, I think. This is just what we do as children. We take care of our elders. So there's this need to reciprocate, the obligation. There can also be feelings of guilt because you are so far away and so on. But there can be a whole spectrum of emotions that makes people pick up the phone and call. But still, it's really the glue that keeps families together, even across distance. It's not just cheap technologies or cheap phone calls, but the, I would say that transnational care collectives are actually effective because they run on people's emotions with all the complexities that this entails. Yeah, that sounds good. And you have a book coming out. Let's talk about your book before we end the podcast. So <laughs> the book is covering a lot of what we were talking about. It's called Calling Families digital technologies, and the making of transnational care collectives. And uh, on my website, you can find discount codes if anybody's interested. It's an ethnography, so I'm an anthropologist, which means that my, this is my main method and also writing style. And uh, I hope that also people working within healthcare broadly will find something for themselves in the book. Yeah. Thank you so much, Tanya. It was great talking with Thank you. Thank you for this conversation. Thanks for hosting me. I really enjoyed this talk. Thanks again, everyone, for joining me on another episode of Healthcare for Humans. If you liked this episode, as always, my ask to you is please share it with one other person and go to healthcareforhumans.org to sign up to be part of the community. And lastly, thank you to Tessa Chu and Maharazaki for supporting this podcast, making sure it's the best it can be, and helping with the creation and the production of all parts of this podcast. Thanks again. I'll see you next time. If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Beyond the Paper Gown, hosted by Dr. Mitzi Krakover, helps people think critically about women's health issues, encouraging them to question and explore the complexities of healthcare systems, scientific advancements, and societal norms. There's a really cool episode that you should check out called Midday Menopause App. And that's about how AI and sensor technology can provide personalized interventions to manage menopause symptoms effectively. Check out Beyond the Paper Gown on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com.